All right, let me roll through a little bit about our series we're going to go through. Again, I've told you this is not a standard sermon. That's not what I'm doing, but I do want to set the scene here for the series that we're going to do. This year, we're going to walk through a series entitled We Believe. So I tend to preach in chapel about every Monday, every other Monday. There are some that I give up if we have special guests coming in that that I can only get in on a Monday. And we've got a couple of those this fall that are just phenomenal opportunities for you to hear from incredible people. So I'll step aside. We'll put them on stage. But our series is going to be We Believe. You'll see this during the PowerPoints consistently throughout the year. What I hope to do is to walk through 21 different messages where we talk about our theological beliefs. Now, when you hear the word theology, you may think something that's way up here in the theoretical realm of contemplation. That's not what I want you to think about. I've titled this series, We Believe, because your theology shapes your worldview. Your worldview shapes the way you see everything, the way you understand everything, the way you act, the way you behave. I'll come back to that a little more later, but We Believe is going to be the series that we go through. Are you guys excited about that? 21 different messages on doctrines? The theme verse for this year is going to be John 20, 31, John 20, 31, It says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so that's the verse uh, that I've been working on this summer, just looking at, and that's where the we believe came from. Now, let me give you a preface to the series. Let me go through a few things ahead of time that I want you to know. Some of these sermons are not going to be as expository or text-driven as what I like. I believe that text-driven preaching is the way to go. The Bible is God's inspired, infallible, and errant word to us. There's not much you can say that's going to add to what he's already said. So the best way to walk through a text is just to walk right through it, elaborate on it, illustrate it, and apply it, and let the text speak. Some of the theological subjects that we'll talk about, though, we're going to have to back up and take a 10,000-foot view of some things, and then we're going to have to move into our application. So we're not going to have as much time to walk through one specific text as perhaps we would in another sermon or in your local church. And so I want you to know that up front so that you understand it. Also realize this is not your local church. Now I've told all the freshmen and their parents and transfer students this, and I remind all of you who are coming back, this is not the local church. I'm not your pastor. I understand that. Uh, We love you and your faculty and staff and and myself and my wife, our family, we're here to minister to you. Uh, We are here because we want you to grow in godliness and to do great things for Jesus, but you need to be involved in a local church. And so go to a local church, get involved in a local church. If you need transportation to a local church, see your RA, see your RD, we can make that happen. We want you to be plugged in and involved in a local church because Jesus died for the local church. The local church is the bride of Christ. And even though she may not be perfect, she is the bride of Christ and we need to love the local church. Can I get an amen on that? All right, good. All right, to the best of my ability, to discern what the Lord wanted me to do this year is the We Believe series. Now, we're all flawed human people, so I hesitate to say to you, God told me to do this. I think, it's, I think we have to be very careful when we blame God for things that we're doing. But to the best of my ability, that's what we're going to do. So one of the questions that I thought you may have is you're going to go through, we believe, will we believe it? Good question. For all the faculty and staff in the room, all of these messages are also in our doctrinal statement here at Cedarville. 
We're not picking something small or something out of the box. We're picking the doctrinal statement issues here at Cedarville. We're going to walk through those. So faculty and staff, yes, you will believe it. There may be a point of application you might disagree with me on and when we go down to the details, and that's okay if you do, but the major issues that we're going to talk about, you'll agree with. So students then, will you believe everything that we talk about in the We Believe series? You might not. There might be something that you disagree with. It's okay. You don't have to sign our doctrinal statement to be a student here. And I want to challenge you in your theological understanding. I want to challenge you in your worldview. I want to help you think through those things. And so if you disagree with something, that's okay. I say jokingly a lot. If you disagree with me, it's all right. You can be wrong if you want to. I'm not going to say that because I don't want you to take it flippantly. But it's not a problem if you disagree with something. Here's what I want you to do. Search God's word and make sure everything is coming out of a foundation of his word. Go talk to some of your professors. Go talk to some of your Bible professors or professor in your major. If you hear something and it's new to you, something that's different as we walk through this. And so I'm not asking each of you to believe everything or say everything exactly as I would say it, but we wanna walk through and not shy away from some of the difficult subjects. Towards that end, we will be addressing the biblical view of marriage in a sermon this year. It's a huge issue. And so we're going to hit it straight on. We're going to address it, but we're not going to spend every single chapel message taking drive-bys on something like that, because let's be honest about this. No single issue is more important than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ and on a lost and dying world that needs to be saved, not from any particular sin, but from unbelief. And as we present the truth of the gospel to those who don't believe, then they will repent and they will believe and the Holy Spirit will take care of cleaning up everything else. So we're going to focus on the gospel this year. So that's going to be what we do. You guys okay with that? What I hope to go for in tone this year is compassionate conviction. So that's what I hope you hear. We have convictions. We need to have convictions, but we also need to be compassionate in those convictions, and that's what I'm after. I have two presuppositions for you in this series, and as I'm giving you those presuppositions, you can go ahead and open your Bibles up to Matthew uh, chapter 23, Matthew chapter 23, as we'll look at that here in just a minute. But the two presuppositions that I have for you is this first one, the God who is spoken of in the Bible exists and desires to communicate with his creation. It's a presupposition, but it's also a presupposition in the Bible because the Bible begins with in the beginning God. It doesn't go about to prove that God exists. It tells you God exists. In the beginning God is revealed to us. And so here also, we start with that same presupposition. The second presupposition is that the Bible as God's communication to us is true and our authoritative standard of truth. Now, this is an important presupposition. How many of you are from Ohio? Raise your hand. Okay. I don't even know what that was. Okay. (laughs) How many of you are from Michigan? Come on. Love one another as you love yourself. All right. It's not football season just yet. Pennsylvania? Indianapolis? I should have said Indiana. That would have been broader. How many of you are from overseas? They're hanging together. They're all right up there, right? All right. 
your experience growing up overseas is going to be vastly different than somebody else's experience from Ohio. How many of you are from the South? When winter shows up this fall, your experience is going to be vastly different (laughs) than what you will experience in Ohio. Yay snow. It's yay snow for the first three days, and then it's oh no, but... We can't build our theology off of experience because every last one of our experience in this room is different. If you start going off of my experience, your experience, this experience, building theology, then you're going to come up with situational ethics. You're going to come up with a theology that won't hold true. And so we build our theology based off what the Bible says because it's God's revealed word. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It's our source for all of our theology. This is what we go back to. So if you disagree with me on that presupposition, You might disagree with me on a lot because I'm always going to try to go back to this book and just point out to what this book says. So understand that. All right, I've got a slide for you of some things that I want to walk through. So throw up slide number five, which talks about the word theology and what it means. It's two Greek words, theos, God, logos, word or discourse. So theology can be described as our study of God or the discussions about God. Here's what I want to argue to you right now is that every one of you is a theologian, whether you like it or not, whether you're a good one or a bad one, whether you're an amateur one or a professional one, you are all theologians because theology or what we believe about God, what the Bible says informs our understanding of life. So we're all theologians. Our theology or what we believe informs the way we view the world or our worldview. And all of you have a worldview. All of you look out at the world in a specific way. Our theology or what we believe determines what we value most and what we value most determines how we act in this life. Our theology or what we believe affects everything. It affects your life. It affects your responsibilities. It affects the causes that you choose to take up. It affects how you view a television show and what worldview it presents. It affects how you watch a movie. It affects how you listen to music. It affects how you view the theater. It affects the relationship between science and faith and whether science interprets faith or whether faith interprets science. Your worldview affects all of your classes. It affects who you want to spend time with. It affects your dreams for life. It affects your ethical system or your lack of an ethical system. It affects your motivations. It affects everything. So my argument to you is to embrace being a theologian. Embrace studying theology. Embrace digging deeper into what we believe so that you can be more established in your faith this year in chapel. So we are now all proclaimed theologians, even if amateur in nature or professional in nature or good or bad. You okay with that? Some of you are not shaking your heads yes. You okay with that? You're the- Do you believe something about God? Raise your hand. You just agreed to volunteer for the Theologian Society, all right? So thank you for signing up. All right, so we're going to begin our journey here. Let me start the journey off this way, and I'm going to be very quick today, like I told you. Uh, My son started playing t-ball for the first time this year. There's a picture of him. Thank you. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? And yes, he did get sticking his tongue out from his dad. I don't know why. It's really bad because you'll bite it every now and then too, but... But isn't it just awesome? And he hit the ball. That's his first, that's his first at-bat in T-ball, playing T-ball. Some of you have younger brothers, younger sisters. Some of you remember yourself. You don't have children that you've watched go through this process. But when you watch children learn the rules to T-ball or baseball for the very first time, it's a fascinating experience. Because I know the rules to baseball. 
And I've watched the game. It's America's favorite pastime. You understand how it's supposed to be played. And you show up on the field with a bunch of four-year-olds and you assume that they know how it's supposed to be played because it's America's favorite pastime and they were born in America, right? And they line up and they hit the ball and they begin running to first base and they don't stop. They just keep running all the way to the facilities that are in the other field across the way. And so there was one particular game after we had tried to get them to learn to run around the bases and their coaches had done a good job trying this, that that Samuel hit the ball and he was running, he went to first and he was running, he was going to second and he was running. I mean, it was beautiful. He had that tongue out and he was moving those legs and those arms and just digging and those elbows were moving and and that stride was just right. And he just looked at me and I was standing at third base and I was coaching the third base at that particular moment. And and he looked over at me and smiled as if to say, I'm fast. (laughs) So fast, went right past second base, right on into left field, (laughs) past all of the other defenders, everybody else running for the ball this way. Samuel's trucking that way. I'm at third base yelling, over here, over here, over here. Finally, he turns and starts to run over to where I am. You know, in fielding, it was was equally as fascinating because they would hit the ball and the ball would go, you know, a really long way, like five feet in in front of where they were hitting the ball from. And all, well, it wasn't 11 players or nine players. It was more like 15 players. All 15 players at the four year old league would run up and the first one would dive on the ball. And the first one would get down and have the glove face down on top of the ball, trapping the ball because that ball's trying to get away and it can't get away, right? <laughs> so you trap the ball and then next thing you know, what happens? All of the other players jump on the person who has trapped the ball so that the ball cannot escape. And all 14 or 15 players then are hovering around this ball and they have it. It's not going anywhere. (laughs) And eventually the coach is yelling, throw it to first, throw it to first, throw it to first. And they unpile slowly as the runner has made their way around home plate by now. But they pick up the ball and they sling the ball to first base. Eventually you learn that if you want to be good at baseball, you have to run the bases the right way. You can't just run anywhere you want to run. And eventually you learn that if you want to get somebody out, you don't all jump on the ball. You spread out a little bit and you let one person get it and throw the ball to first first base. Those are the rules of baseball. It changes the way you play the game when you understand the rules of baseball. When you understand the rules of life, when you understand what God has revealed to us in his word, it changes the way you live your life. So as we look at what God's word says to us about how we should live life, it should have a personal effect, not just up here in the theoretical discussions, not just in debates at the coffee house, but it should have a practical application in our hearts and in the way we act. And so to repent of something is to say, I agree with God on this particular issue. I have changed my thinking in God. I agree with you that this is wrong. And so in changing my thinking, I change the way I act. And when we discuss theology, that should be what happens. We should change what we believe and it should change the way we act. Some people come to this life and they have the YOLO mentality. You only live once. If you only live once, live it up. It's what Paul says if he says there is no resurrection. If there is no resurrection, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. But there is a resurrection. 
And there is a divine umpire up there saying to you, you got to run the bases a certain way, it's better for you. You got to catch the ball and throw it to first. If you want to be good at baseball, it's better for you. And he gives us these rules and he gives us these guidelines and he gives us this information in his word. And so we look at what he has said to us, particularly in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, is where I want you to look at. 22, verse 36, and I want to read this to you. Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, I think they have it for you on the screens up there as well. It says, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So you see here in Matthew 22, verse 36, the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. How do we love God with all of our mind? We learn more about God and who he is, and it changes the way we think about things on this earth. It changes the way we act so that our passions and our desires then are to love God and we reflect him as we seek to live like him. But you know, this is not the first time that the great commandment shows up. The great commandment shows up much earlier in Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through nine, where it says, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And look at what it says about this. And these words that I command you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You have to know them in order to teach them. And the command is that you share this with your children. It says that you shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way. So whether you're at home or whether you're walking, you talk about the commandments of God. That means you are a theologian sitting down or a theologian walking. You are always talking about God's command and God's word because it's what you're thinking about most. It is what has so immersed your life in that every word that comes out of you is baked in theology. It breathes theology. It testifies to the glory of God in one way or another. And so as you walk, as you sit, as you lie down, when you go to bed, you're thinking about God's word. When you rise up, you're thinking about God's word. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontless between your eyes. This affected the clothing that they wore. It affected the way they presented themselves. You shall write them on your doorpost of your house and on your gates. And some of you even today have mezuzahs, the little things that you put on the doorpost that you can put scripture inside of. And, and they put that on their doorpost. And it's not necessarily meaning that everybody should have a mezuzah, but what it's talking about is the way that you even present your house and your hospitality and your decorations. You're testifying here to God. We should never shy away from studying God's word. We should never shy away from the word theology. We should never shy away from doctrine. We should never shy away from what this book tells us on how we should live our life. We should never shy away from what we believe, but we do have to keep it in the context of the great commandment. And the great commandment tells us to love others as we love ourselves also. And so there is a compassion that comes with our conviction. You say to me, I don't want to study all this stuff. It's work. It is work. I don't want to go that deep into theology. That sounds boring. I don't want to read the whole Bible. By the way, if you come up to me and you disagree with something, here's my first question to you is, have you read the entire Bible? I want to challenge you. If you've not read the entire Bible, that's a problem. God created you 
God loved you so much that while you were a sinner, he sent his only begotten son to live on this life, to be spit upon, to be cursed, to be whipped, to be beaten, to be rejected, to hang on a cross, to die for your sins, to go to a grave, to get up three days later so that you might have life and have it more abundantly so that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you so that you could be saved. He wrote you a book revealing himself to you so that you would know who God is. And if you haven't read his book, you're not really looking to see who God is. So I'm not going to ask you to show your hands, but if you haven't read the entire Bible, and that means the genealogies too, if you haven't read the entire Bible, you haven't read God's love letter to you revealing who he is. I've got just a few more minutes here. We'll be done. But think about this. If you this weekend met a girl who loved Jesus, and that's important first, but secondly, She was the most beautiful angel to have ever fallen from heaven. And even as she walked, beauty adorned the flowers that she went by because she's just that magnificent of an individual. And her eyes light up an entire room when she enters. And all heads shift to look at God's magnificent creation. And she sent you a three-page Facebook message. Would you read it? What if you didn't read it? And then you saw her and you said, I'd really like to get to know you. And she said, well, you know, I kind of noticed you too. And I sent you a three-page Facebook message. And you told her, yeah, you know, I saw that, but it was really long. And, you know, I thought it might be kind of boring. And so... I didn't, I didn't really care to get to know you that well because in my mind, you're already perfect. And so what you are in my mind is the way I want you to stay. And I don't really care to know who you really are. I just want you to be the, the thing I've created in my mind. Girls, what would you say to that guy? I'm seeing this thing. I don't know what this thing means, but I, I think that's illegal in the NFL. So we won't go into any further detail there. They would say to you, you don't really want to get to know me. You have created this image in your mind, and that's what you love. If you've created an image of God that is not what's presented in this Bible, then you have created a false God that is the God that you want to worship, that is an idol before the one true God, and unless it comes from what he's revealed to us, it's not true. Girls, it goes the same way. If you've watched one too many Cinderella movies and you think every guy can get out there and dance like the prince in the movies and that you're gonna live happily ever after, that guy does not exist, all right? I'm just trying to help you out, guys. That guy is not there. Guys like to play basketball and then not take showers afterwards and go hang out. I mean, it doesn't bother them at all, all right? It's just guys being guys. If you don't believe me, go to one of their dorm rooms and look around. When it's not open dorm night and that, because they clean it up then because they want you to think, they put their best foot forward, right? It's the dirty socks. You can't go there when it's not open dorms. I know that. You can quit talking about that. I've got a point in the illustration there though. The figment of our imagination, when you look at a spouse, when you look at somebody you're interested in, or when you think about God, may not be the one true God. Let's dig in, let's dig deep, let's find out who he is. All right, I've gotta move quickly because I've got a few other things that I wanna say to you here. We've got two overarching principles. One is the great commandment, the second is the great commission. The great commission, we learn more about God so that we can make better disciples and we can teach them better to observe all things that God has commanded us. 
This is also the second half of the great commandment. If you love others as you love yourself, you're going to want them to know about the gospel. You want them to know about the gospel. You're going to share the great commission with them. You're going to share the gospel with them. You're going to take it to the ends of the earth. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 is where we get the great commission from. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. How do we teach them if we don't know what we've been taught? How do we walk through it if we've never studied it? So we study it and we learn it so that we can teach it. That's what our faculty and staff here do is to help walk through all things God has commanded with you. It's part of our calling is to fulfill the great commission. And that happens in every classroom. It happens in developing the gifts God has given you. So why should you want to study theology? Well, here are three practical reasons in closing. Number one, it helps us to understand and overcome wrong ideas. Number two, except it's got another number one up there, it helps us to live consistently with what we claim we believe. And a third, number one, is that it helps us to grow as Christians. So let me give you a few quotes here because it helps us to oppose things that are wrong and overcome wrong ideas. Listen to these quotes here, and I think we actually have them for your slides. The cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. Carl Sagan. Is that true or is that false? No, it's false. And that affects your worldview. Next slide. Almost every religion talks about a savior coming. Is it up there? Let's go. Yeah, there it is. When you look in the mirror in the morning, when you're putting on your lipstick or shaving, you're looking at the savior. Nobody else is going to save you but yourself. Ted Turner. If that's the case, I'm in a heap of a lot of trouble. Next slide. Human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons. The life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. Tenured professor of bioethics at Princeton University. Do you believe that? It's a different worldview, isn't it? It's a different way of understanding theology. Here's another one for you that was too long to put up there. This is a quote that comes out of the Humanist magazine. I am convinced that the battle for humankind's future must be waged and won in the public school classroom by teachers who correctly perceive their roles as proselytizers of a new faith, a religion of humanity that recognizes and respects what theologians call divinity in every human being. These teachers must embody the same selfless dedication as the most rabid fundamentalist preacher. For they will be ministers of another sort, utilizing a classroom instead of a pulpit to convey humanist values in whatever subject they teach, regardless of the education level, preschool, daycare center, or large state university. The classroom must and will be an arena of conflict between the old and the new, the rotting corpse of Christianity together with all of its adjacent evils and misery and the new faith of humanism. It will undoubtedly be a long, arduous, painful struggle, replete with much sorrow and many tears, but humanism will emerge triumphant. It must if the family of humankind is to survive. That's 1983. You want to know why we are where we are? It's because they had a plan and an agenda and they implemented it. And we must be wise enough to fight against it and to overcome it. It also helps us to live consistently with what we claim. 
83% of Americans identify themselves as Christians, yet only 49% of them describe themselves as absolutely committed to Christianity. I wish somebody could explain that to me. How can you describe yourself as a Christian and then not describe yourself as absolutely committed to Christianity? Look at what happens when you don't have a biblical worldview and statistics say that about 4% of Americans have a biblical worldview and only about 9% of those categorized as born again Christians have a biblical worldview. Look at what happens if you don't have a biblical worldview. Next slide. Around 100 times more likely to endorse abortion. Around 80 times more likely to say exposure to pornography is morally acceptable. 31 times more likely to believe living together before marriage is morally acceptable. 15 times more likely to believe homosexual sex is acceptable. 18 times more likely to endorse drunkenness. 11 times more likely to say adultery is okay. You want to know why it's important to study theology? It's important to study theology so that you'll have a biblical worldview, so that you will know how to live your life in a way that glorifies God, in a way that presents the gospel to others. It also helps us grow as a Christian. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This next year, we are going to dig deeper into our theology. We are going to dig deeper into how we view the world. We are going to dig deeper because we should love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we should love others as ourselves, and it's going to be a benefit to us, and it's going to be a benefit to others, and it's going to help us fulfill the Great Commission, and that's why we're going to dive deep into theology. And because I've named the series, we believe there's going to be a song you're going to hear a lot this year. The song is, I believe, it's close enough. It's all of us singing, I believe, so it's we believe. And we're gonna, we're gonna sing the song frequently this year. We're gonna sing it here in just a minute as we close too. But here's what I wanna challenge you to do. This year, look at your own presuppositions. Look at how you have formed your beliefs about the world, about who you are, about who God is, and about how you live your life. And make sure that you are firmly rooted and established in God's word and not experience in your worldview, in your theological beliefs, and how you love God. Are you up for that challenge? Yeah. All right, I texted Clayton yesterday to tell him I was praying for him and praying for Bible conference. And I told him, I said, you know, I'm, I'm praying we might see 40 people saved at Bible conference this week. He texted me back and he said, Man, your face weak. I'm praying for 100. How many are you praying for? I'm just praying God shows up and does something amazing. And I'm expecting he will. And I expect it'll start tonight. So I'm going to pray. Then they're going to come up and they're going to sing us out. We're going to sing out together. And then tonight, come ready and expecting God to do something amazing. Let's go to the Lord before prayer, for prayer. Dear God, we come to you now. We thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for who you are. God, I pray tonight at Bible conference as it starts that you would just be with Clayton and that you would anoint him with your spirit, that, Lord, we would have a great time looking at your word, that we would be challenged. Father, I pray that you would do something amazing this week in all of our hearts and our lives, that we might be challenged to be more like Christ. And Father, if there are a hundred people here who don't know you, then Lord, I too pray that we would see a hundred people saved. God, I pray that however many people are in this room or that will be here this week that don't know you, that Lord, they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as, as their Lord and Savior. God, we want you to be glorified on this campus and we want you to reveal yourself to us in a way that is absolutely amazing. 
and in a way that we can't even pray for accurately. So God, do something here. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.